0: All right, let's turn to Genesis 34. Genesis 34. Uh, I remember uh, a few years ago, Little, was, uh, she lost her finger. She lost her finger in an accident. And, um, and, and the doctors tried to save it, and they couldn't save it. And so they're going to have to amputate it. And uh, we had a guy that worked at camp. His name was Daniel Ritchie. Um, he worked here at the time. And some of y'all know him. Daniel was born with no arms. Um, so he's gone through life with no arms. And I remember uh, i don't remember who said something to Daniel. It was like in a group setting and somebody was asking, be praying for little, she's losing a finger. And Daniel just made the comment, she'll be okay. <laughs> and, uh, and I just, man, I've always thought about that story in my life. Like no matter how bad a situation is, context is so important. Or I guess... What is, what is it relative to, you know? What's your situation relative to? Um, we, have a, we have a weighty passage in front of us, and uh, it is one that... So, so I am not in the same category as A.W. Pink. He's one of the great pastors, teachers, commentators of modern history. And in his commentary, he skipped this chapter. So... <laughs> that's not intimidating <laughs> um, and so it's a heavy it's a heavy passage it's, it's in the vein of you know um, there's so many there's so many heavy texts that we've been through we're 34 chapters into Genesis and we give you something to think about as we kind of set this up get our minds going in the same direction here um, some things to think about the story of Hagar is horrible it's horrible it was, it was But the redeeming moment in the story of Hagar was when Yahweh's angel comes to Hagar and says, I'm going to be with you. I'm gonna take care of you. You got this redeeming moment. Um, The story of Sodom and Gomorrah um, was, we worked through that story and it's hard to find like the redeeming moment in that story. The story of Lot and his daughters it's really difficult to find the redeeming moment. So you've got one of the things that we're learning in, in Genesis. And let me say this as, as we think back to the beginning of this. Moses is writing this, right? Moses is writing this. This is written by Moses to the people of Israel many generations later while they're in, in, the, in the wilderness. They've, they've escaped slavery. They're in the wilderness. And Moses is a master storyteller. But master storytellers don't only tell stories that have happy endings. But we tend to only wanna hear stories that have happy endings. So we get into this story and we look for the, if you look for the redeeming moment in the 31 verses of Genesis 34, you will not find it. You will not find it. It's not in these verses. What you have to do is zoom out and look at the bigger narrative of scripture and what God's doing in history. The redeeming moment in history is the cross of Jesus and the three days subsequent to that and the empty tomb. That's the redeeming moment in history. So when you get to a place in scripture, this is very important for the listener, for the student of the word of God, and we wanna be a church that is theologically grounded. When you come to places in scripture, I had a conversation with some girls this week, that are here tonight uh, and, and they were counseling some high school girls who were saying, how do we reconcile David killing 200 Philistines in order to get like as a bride price? And that's a dark story. And then David is rewarded with the, with the, with the bride, you know? And, and you go, okay, if this is, this is the story of God, what do we do with stories like that? You zoom out you zoom out sometimes you zoom in and sometimes you zoom out and when you're zooming when you're zooming in hard enough and you start to lose focus you zoom out this is what you do anybody have to use these yet right what do you do if you don't have these you back out right you get to where you can see it clearly and this is one of those stories where we can only drill so much into this narrative because it's dark and there's 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 some glimpses of redemption, but it's like, oh, there it is. There it is. Nope. And then there's like a crash and a burn. And and so we have to go into this story with with that awareness um, and, and and also with the awareness that uh, Moses, the context that Moses is telling this story to the people of Israel. So let's jump into it. Um, try to do it in, in, in three chunks is what I want to do. Um, Genesis 34, starting verse one. Now Dinah, the the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, and he he humiliated her. So it was a, a, a violation of her personal purity. It was a sexual assault. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they had heard of it. And the men were indignant and were very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done." But Hamor spoke with them, saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Okay, so let's, let's uh, consider a couple things here. So the first thing to consider is to ask the question, what are they doing in Shechem? Because if we go back to chapter 28, God had commanded Jacob to go to Bethel. And Jacob, on the journey to Bethel, stops in Shechem at the end of chapter thirty three and purchases land in a pagan environment now there's there, the commentators don 't agree on this. Um, some will say, well, but they 're on the way, and they 're getting there and and but then they'll like the overwhelming Volume of commentaries and study and research that I did, guys are saying he didn't go all the way. This is a Jacob thing, man. He didn't carry through like he didn't carry it out. He didn't go through with what God had commanded him. And so they settle in Shechem. And that first verse says that his daughter, this is a daughter and it designates that she's the daughter of Leah. Now, why is that significant? Because when Leah and Rachel, when that story happens, you remember, it said that Jacob actually hated Leah. And then he had children by her. And so he has, he has these four sons, he has a daughter by her. And so it would appear that, that Dinah is out from under Jacob's patriarchal or fatherly care. This is a father who is not engaged with his daughter. He's not paying attention to his daughter. And so she's in the land. She's mingling with Canaanites. Do, listen, doing Canaanite things. She's, her worldview is being shaped by the pagan world around her. her. Her opinion of style or sexuality or relationships are being shaped by the world around her. And she puts herself in a compromising situation. And we could speculate on like what part of that is her responsibility, but we don't need to do that. The bottom line is the, the majority of the responsibility is laid at the feet of Jacob. He's the patriarch, he's the father, he's the leader, he's commissioned by God to shepherd these people. Dads have an inerrant, God-given responsibility to pay attention to their kids, to know what they're watching, to know what they're doing on their phone, to know who they're spending time with, to know that, to be aware of that, and to not be afraid to, it's okay if you, if you don't let a 15-year-old have her way. That's okay she's 15 and i'm gonna make some 15 year olds mad now you don't know as much as you think you know when you're 15 years old you think you know we, we said a couple of weeks ago i said the older you get the more you realize you don't know like like and that and the more life just breaks you down and teaches you and so What it takes is an engaged father figure. Dads, your job is to be the number one discipler and shepherd in your home. That is not the job of the pastors of this church. That that sits directly, squarely on the shoulders of fathers. That's a lesson for us. And a lot of times we can learn lessons by somebody doing something wrong better than we can learn lessons by somebody doing something right. And, and I don't know why she's hanging out with Canaanites. I just don't know. I can't figure it out. And, 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 the, and the text is, for the most part, silent on that. But she is. And so she gets herself in a compromised situation or she's pulled into a compromised situation in a society where women are totally objectified and she's assaulted. And it's this real barbaric, I mean, it's so twisted, the terminology in verses one through four, because it's like he does this to her then he speaks tenderly to her. It's, de- it's devious. It's demonic. And then he seeks to take possession of her. This is what he's de- he, We're dealing with pagan ideology. And I'll be honest, it doesn't look much different than what we're dealing with today with our sons and daughters and the society that we're raising them in. Objectification of sexuality, agendized relationships allowing children to be the masters of their own destiny that hits home for us where we are as a society and so Jacob just doesn't say anything about it man he doesn't do anything about it Jacob doesn't lead Jacob does Jacob here's what I think about Jacob at this point in the story chapters and chapters in I think he loves the Lord he seeks to worship the Lord but he's a coward when there's conflict he, he absolutely unravels when there's conflict it was a girl this uh, or a kid I think it was a boy this week that had a cut foot and and uh, from what I heard there was a there was like a blood trail from the creek down there all the way up to this building and all the way around this the kid was running looking for some help and was just must have hit a good you know good and and that all that gravity's taken over and and uh, there was a a male leader adult leader from a church that came spinning around this building and i was standing outside I don't remember who i was with maybe rob and the guy comes running up and he's white as a ghost and freaked out and i'm like hey man it's gonna be all right <laughs> some people don't do good when like stuff is is going down you know and and but for jacob it seems like every time things ramp up think back to when that story it was two weeks ago the story where his brother esau's coming and he's like just sending waves, like all the blessing God had given him. He's like sending it. Take it. And he's just panicking. Take it, Esau. Then at the very end, he sends his wives and children, and he stays back. Like this guy is not good in a bad situation. He's not a man of courage. He's not a man of resolve. He's not the guy you won't lead in when things are going down. And so this, uh, this dude, this, this uh, local king, so you got a king. Hamor Hamor and Shechem king and king's son so daddy's money starts talking and the boy's daddy comes out to Jacob and he's like hey we got a situation here's the situation Um, my son and your daughter are in a relationship but the nature of the relationship is not something I know you're going to approve of let's strike a deal and and what jumps out to me at this point is that Jacob doesn't ask about his daughter he doesn't say where's my daughter he doesn't. He doesn't go completely savage, right? Like at this point, any dad who's worth anything is going to find his daughter. That's all that's going to matter at this point. But this is the guy, David. Or uh, this is the guy that snowbird folks, did you hear? Did you hear that slip? <laughs> We've been talking about David for 11 weeks. Um, this is the guy that that Jacob had bought his land off of. This is the king. This is the man of influence. And this is the man who, has, he's the man of influence who's taken up for his, for his boy. He's taken up for his little boy. Yeah, my son raped your daughter, let's work out a deal. Let's put, let's, let's sweep, the, let's, what can we do? No reason to get everybody involved and worked out, let's just, what can we do? And Jacob's like, trying to sort this out. Well then, Jake, and Jacob, here's what Jacob's not doing, he's not advocating for his daughter. She's been, literally, she's been defiled. Let me explain this to you men that don't understand, or women who have never had this happen by God's grace. There's a bunch, now y'all listen, there are a bunch of people sitting in this room right now, an astronomical percentage. This is not unique to Red Oak. In any room with 300 people sitting in the room, this this this, this is the truth. An overwhelming number of people have had an experience where they were violated. Like statistics, secular statistics will say one in eight. S- most conservative statistics will say one in four. Between one in four and one in eight. Our experience in doing student ministry over the last 25 years is that one in four is maybe even being generous. There's a bunch of red oak ladies that have been hurt at a time in their life where they couldn't fight for themselves. And what happens is the repercussive effect of that is you're, you're defiled in your body and you live in that body. So you can't escape the feeling of defilement. Girls will say, I feel dirty. I can't wash it off. I can't get it clean. I can't get out from under it. I can't get away from it. The, oftentimes girls will describe, I took a shower, then I took another shower, then I took another shower, then I took another shower, and I just couldn't get rid of it. So the feeling of defilement leaves you isolated in a room full of people. And then you've got a dad that's not doing anything. She's, guess where she's at? When, when Hamor, when this dude shows up to talk to Jacob, Donna still... In the city with these pagans. They're holding her. She's basically a human slave at this point. And all Jacob's trying to do is is weigh his options. So the when so so feeling the weight of this, when the brothers show up, they hear about it and they are indignant. They are indignant and they're gonna do something about it. In fact, the the one thing that's spoken that's so truthful. And in, in the text is in verse 7, when the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and were very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. He says they're indignant because it's outrageous, and this thing should not be done. This is where, like, sometimes I feel like where we're at right now as a society, we're scared to speak up and just say, hey, that's, that's wrong. That's not Okay. This, this sexually perverse thing is not okay according to what the word of God teaches. And, but nobody's even speaking up. But these guys are like, okay, let's start by recognizing this is outrageous. Our daughter is in the city. She's in Shechem right now being held and maybe she's not being held against her will. I don't know, but she's 15. She doesn't get to make that choice. She's 15. She doesn't get to make that choice. Kindergartners don't get to choose those types of things. Eighth graders don't get to choose those types of things. A male's frontal lobe doesn't even completely solidly form until he's 25. You can't even, you can't buy alcohol till you're 21. You can't get a rental vehicle in most states till you're 25. You can't vote till you're 18. But we're going to celebrate sexual expression at 13 in our culture right now. Looks a lot like Shechem. And the brothers show up and they're like, no, 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 no. We're men of conviction, this is not okay. We're not gonna allow this. We're gonna do something about this. they th- this is incendiary. They return from the fields and they determine that they're gonna do something about it. But it says in verse eight, Hamor spoke with them, saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter, please give him to be his wife. See, he's like, this guy's slimy, man. He's slimy, and he's also never had anybody stand up to him because he's the king of this little kingdom. I mean, it's not an impressive kingdom. Like when you study world history in 10th grade or whenever it was in your school, then, you know, it's like Nero and... Um, and. Uh, like go back through the Roman Caesars and then Xerxes and the Persian kings and then then there's the guy from Shechem. Nope, he's not in there. Like this is a small dude in a small pond but he's got an exaggerated opinion of his own importance and influence and so he's pushing that and so he starts to try to manipulate these boys and so he's going to cut a deal with them. Verse 9, make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me a great bride price as a gift, as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me, only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister, Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that will be a disgrace to us. Only in this condition will we agree with you that you'll become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, we'll not take our daughter and we will be gone. We will take our daughter and we will be gone. The plan is that the two groups join together, become one people. Um, In verse 13, it says, Dinah's brothers speak deceitfully. Remember, circumcision was a Jewish practice given as a sign of obedience, surrender, and hope to those who would join the people of God and the people of promise. So they're taking this thing and they're twisting it to use it for deception. I don't want to miss or lose Dinah in the middle of this portion of the story because she's constantly overlooked by Jacob and by Hamor and by Shechem. Her brothers are the only ones speaking for her. They're the only ones advocating for her, defending her, fighting for her. And so they're the only ones that are paying attention to her. But they're doing it deceitfully, not totally honorably. Verse 18, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young men did not, uh, did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he's the most honored of all his father's house, so Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us... Take their daughters as wives, let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. So these guys are willing to do whatever they need to do, but we're told their reason for doing it is personal gain. If we do this, we get all of their assets. We get their livestock, we get their money, we get like like these boys are willing to to say or do whatever they need to do, but it's for personal gain. It's kind of like, I see this a lot where um, a girl likes a boy, the mom of the girl likes the boy, because he's cute or whatever that means. Dads, when we see boys, we don't see cute i ain't never, never seen a cute teenage boy, not one. It's not, he does not exist, not as long as I got teenage daughters. He's cute, he's cute. But a lot of times you see this thing where the girls say, well, he, his family doesn't go to church, but he says he believes in God. All right, there's a need for a like-mindedness when it comes to worldview, when it comes to your faith. And this is even outside of the Christian realm. Like This is just practical, it's very difficult. To go through life, to do life with somebody that doesn't share the same world view. These guys are like yeah, we'll say whatever, we'll do whatever, we'll, we'll we'll do your little ceremony and then heal up and move forward. Okay, verse 25. On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor, killed his son Shechem with the sword. They took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away, so she's still there. The sons of Jacob came on the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, their wives, and all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. This isn't justice. It's vengeance. And vengeance always brings you down. It never brings a good or right in. In vengeance, you become like the one that you're attacking. Vengeance always makes things worse. Vengeance belongs to the Lord because he can handle it with justice and mercy. And then look how Jacob responds. This is absolutely mind-blowing. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. This blows my mind. He still hasn't mentioned his daughter Dinah. And you know what his response is? What about our financial security? What about, now we've got land. I've got a lot of assets. I've got a lot of investments with other business owners in the region. This is going to compromise all of that. What are you guys thinking? Is that not appalling? There's no good guy in this story. There's no good guy in this story. Because we, we, we feel, we re, men especially, like what the brothers do, that resonates with us. There's, at this point, there's three types of dudes in this story. There's weak, cowardly, won't stand up for what is right, won't do the hard thing because it's uncomfortable. There's there's Jacob. There's perverse, selfish, manipulative, controlling, abusive Shechem. And then there's the boys who start so strong but basically just turn into rogue thugs, man. They're just like taking its vigilante justice with no mercy. See, the gospel, James writes of the gospel and he says, Justice and mercy are harmonized in the gospel. But if you have justice with no mercy, that's vengeance. And vengeance always goes down a path of destruction. That's why, that's why the scripture says, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. That's what the Lord said. The Lord can be trusted with vengeance because his vengeance is, is vengeance in the context of justice. And justice in the context of God executing justice is always balanced with mercy. This is what happens at the cross, at the cross of Christ. Justice is being poured out. See, at this point in history, we've already had like this cleansing, this purging of the depravity of man with the flood. And within one generation after the flood, people are back doing stupid stuff, you know. People are back losing control of themselves. And so Jesus is like, well, here's, I've got, in all this brokenness, I've got a plan. And the plan is I'm going to enter into the brokenness. And then I'm going to bring you out of it and I'm going to, and I'm going to bring you out of it and set you in a place where you can experience freedom from that brokenness, spiritual freedom, emotional freedom, psychological freedom. But verse 31, look how the boys respond to Jacob, but they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Jacob's like, what about my assets? What about my mutual funds? Bitcoin, crypto, like, I got, a lot, I got a lot tied up here. Real estate, I bought two car dealerships. You're like, what is he talking about? His financial security is more important than the daughter that he's already shown that he has disdain for. He's never given her the time of day. And the brothers simply say, you're worried about your money? I'll tell you one thing. Our sister was treated like a prostitute and we ain't letting that happen. And that's how it ends. And you're kind of going... Well, at least, at least there's some nobility there, but they're still not a good guy. They're still not a good guy. Let's consider some things in the way we close this out. There seems to be redeeming qualities to the story, but this is how the gospel works. A sovereign God enters into the darkness of humanity to save people who cannot save themselves and who continually mess up in spite of themselves. We've been conditioned to have happy endings, to have good guys and bad guys, protagonists and antagonists, a hero or a heroine who comes through to save the day. But one of the things that's so raw about the word of God is that oftentimes the ugliest stories are told and no stone is left unturned. God just shows us the dirt and the grit and the brokenness and the ugliness. Nothing is made to look better than it is. It simply is what it is. People are broken. People are selfish. People hurt other people. They hurt each other. People need someone to rescue them from themselves. All of us can relate to this in some capacity. The beauty of Jesus coming into this world is that he came into a world that was broken and in need of a rescue, and yet there was no one worth saving. Even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Even when we think of the lineage of Jesus, we see all of this in full form. Think about the descendant, the descendant Jesus and his ancestry. He descended from Leah, who was Jacob's wife of deceit. Then she gave birth to a son named Judah, who would sleep with a prostitute and give birth to a son That prostitute's name was Tamar, Leah Tamar. A few generations later, there will be a prostitute named Rahab. If you don't know the story of Rahab, she's this prostitute living in this really dark and broken city called Jericho. And there's this rescue mission to bring her and her family out of there. Well, that lady is in the line of Christ. Then there's Ruth, who was a Moabite, a pagan people. There's Bathsheba who was an, the woman that committed adultery with David. There's Mary, an unwed teenage mother. Like, like when the world writes a story about a, about a man becoming king or about a God taking his rightful place, they don't do it that way. What Jesus is doing is he's entering into not just humanity but where he comes into the human experience is in the most depraved places. A deceptive prostitute, a broken Moabite, Leah, Mary. Jesus enters into the brokenness so that he might bring people out of it. He does this in his own ministry on the earth. Think of the woman at the well. The man born blind, just in John's gospel, woman at the well where Jesus goes and meets with this lady, what does he do? He brings her out spiritually. The, the, the man that's born blind that the rest of his life he can see, but he deals with the ridicule of being healed by Jesus. Jesus is constantly engaging people in their story, the, story of le- the stories of lepers who are unclean unclean and unable to interact with other humans because that disease was so feared lepers in the new testament time period man they couldn't even like they couldn't interact with their own family they had to live in these colonies we've seen these colonies in places like india parts of africa we've seen them they still exist it's weird man people living out there nobody will interact with them remember how remember how through the ep- the pandemic how A lot of us start to feel the stress of not having human interaction. Imagine living your whole life like that and you're just unclean. Lepers were like that and Jesus would go to these lepers and he'd physically touch them. Some of them haven't been physically touched in a decade. He enters into human suffering. He identifies with people in their brokenness. This is the gospel. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That idea that you're washed and cleansed from your sin, like, think about What Dinah needed in her defilement was to know that there is a God who cleanses people from unrighteousness. What some of you need to know tonight in the shame that you live with from your own story is that there is a Jesus who cleanses you from unrighteousness from the inside out. That's what the gospel is. He cleanses you. Cleanses you. Such were some of you, and you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. He brings healing. This type of story frustrates or angers or appeals to a demand for justice, but God had brought a cleansing and a purging justice through the cross of Christ. The gospel is a story of Jesus entering into the darkness and brokenness of the world to bring justice and mercy. The boys tried for justice, but it turned into revenge which actually turned into personal gain. That's not the same thing as justice. James says that mercy and justice are harmonized in the gospel message that God works at the cross of Jesus. Justice was served and mercy was given to Dinah and Jacob and me and you and anyone who calls on the name of Jesus, giving us a way out of the brokenness of the human story. For a lot of people, the problem of evil in their own life, the brokenness they have experienced becomes the great stumbling stone to trusting in Jesus but arbitrary suffering can give way to a savior who rescues us and brings us into an eternal kingdom where justice reigns and mercy is poured out continuously, forever. The mercy of Jesus is poured out on those who receive him. It's hard to deal with a story like this and to go, what do we take away from this? What we take away from it is humanity's broken. We recognize that. People are broken. Societies are broken, we recognize that, but nobody seems to know how to deal with the brokenness. There's no government plan, there's no social plan. We've even even coined the phrase social justice, but nobody can even agree with what that is or how to even deal with it. Everybody agrees there's a problem. Everybody agrees we're broken. People are articulating what the scripture has been teaching for thousands of years, that man has an issue. We live in a fallen world. And people will say, well, I can't trust in your God because, and they'll state the problem of evil. If you reject the gospel, you still have the problem of evil, but you now have no moral law. Let me tell you the problem with what what these boys did where they got off the rails. They were living in a time where there was no rule of law. Think about this. In Shechem, there's no rule of law, in other words, God has not given his law to man yet. So law is interpretive at a time where might makes right. The law of that land, it wasn't the rule of law, it was the rule of man. And Shechem and Hamor were the ones in control. What what are the boys gonna do? Appeal to Shechem and Hamor? Appeal to the king and his son? Hey, there's been an injustice done against our sister. You're the one that committed it. We'd like to appeal to a higher power. He's the king. So they took matters into their own hands. It became vigilante justice. We live in a time where God has established a law. Man sees his inability to live up to God's law. And that increases our recognition of the brokenness and darkness of the world we live in. We live in a broken world, but rejecting God doesn't make the brokenness go away. Oh, I don't believe in Jesus because the world's screwed up. Oh, okay, so do you not believe the world's screwed up if you don't believe in Jesus? like what? what What's the application? What Jesus has done is entered into the brokenness and says, physically, you're going to feel the weight of this. Spiritually, emotionally, you live in a fallen world, but I'm going to bring you out of that. Jesus entered into it so that through salvation, he could give us meaning and purpose and take that thing that makes no sense and put it in its rightful place so that it no longer becomes a thing that controls you no longer becomes the thing that overwhelms you. We zoom out, we zoom out. What we get is, it's a big, ugly history. But Jesus is redeeming it. And he's doing it through the message of his gospel. And one day, he will bring justice to the abuser. And in this life, if we can bring justice to the abuser, thank God we live in a society that will do that and we're a church that if you come to us ladies and you say this happened to me we're going to go to the full letter of the law in whatever way is appropriate and allowed but ultimately what you need is what only Jesus can bring and that's the healing that goes so deep that it cleanses and restores and gives purpose and value and the gospel does that let's pray Lord, I pray that you take story of brokenness. God, I pray for visitors that are here tonight that are probably thinking, What in the world is this church up to? But God, as we work through the book of Genesis verse by verse, the beauty, but the difficulty is that when we come to these kinds of passages, we can't go around them. We gotta work through it. We gotta deal with it. We gotta see a, a main idea. In a story like this, which is God is moving and working in history, sometimes in spite of our own brokenness. And thank you that you are bigger than our mess ups. You are bigger than our inability to deal with things on our own in our own strength. Help us to learn from that. And tonight I pray that if there's someone here that doesn't know you, that they would have their mind awakened and made aware of the reality of who you are. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be glorified in everything that's going to happen in the, in the last few minutes here as we sing and in fellowship and hang out with each other. I pray that you would be glorified as the truth of your word settles into our hearts and minds even as we go from here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.